I just love Christmas, don't you? Oh, Christmas is my favorite holiday for lots of reasons, uh, not just spiritual. But I'm glad that we get to celebrate Christmas this week with family and friends, and, and whether they're at a distance or they're real close, that you're able to connect with them, talk with them by phone or whatever. Uh, how many of you have a birthday on Christmas? Anybody here born on Christmas? We got one very close. Yeah, that happens. Somebody right over here on Christmas? The 26th, the day after Christmas. You know, so the best birthday gifts can be bought the day after Christmas because everything's like half off at the stores. That's a great thing. I've known some people and been related, uh, related to a few people who uh, were born on Christmas. And, uh, and, the, and the sad thing is they'll tell you that everybody forgets their birthday. Or, or it's a side note near the end. Oh, yeah, we didn't. Let, let's stop and celebrate, you know, the birthday for like five minutes. And then let's get back to our toys or whatever it is that they're doing. It's hard sometimes when you're born on a holiday, especially Christmas. The whole world's celebrating, but not you. Um, it's just kind of a challenge. But it reminds me of the verse here that's, uh, that was just uh, read by John just a few moments ago. You know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only forgotten son, that whosoever, you picked up on that, you have to listen very closely. There will be some this week that will celebrate everything under the sun except for the son of, of God. He'll be the forgotten one at a lot of celebrations this week as family are gathering and all. It's like, what is this reason about? You know, one of my favorite uh, Christmas movies, and there's lots of good Christmas movies. I won't go through it or debate it with you, but Charlie Brown still has it uh, nailed on, on how uh, simple and perfect Christmas is. When Linus reads the Luke, you know, passage, you know, with the simplicity about Jesus coming uh, to save his people from their sins. That is just a classic, you know, excellent explanation of, of Christmas, that we wouldn't forget him. Now, thinking about relatives for a moment, uh, don't raise your hand, but how many Christmases have you gathered together with extended relatives and there's always that one or two that's like, oh, I hope we make it through the holidays with them that being there. It's a little different. You know, you got that uncle, that brother, that cousin, whatever, and they're just, they make it a little awkward. And so you, you, you kind of minimize your time as much as you can because not everybody's cut from the same mold. Would you agree? Now, if you don't have anybody else in your family like that, it's probably because you are that person. <laughs> and you haven't picked that up, that you're there and everybody's just great, but they're probably thinking maybe not so much about you. I don't know. But the thing is about family, when we all get together, we're not all the same. We may all have the same last name or all be related some uh, way, but we're not all the same. And how do we gather together and celebrate the love of Christ when we struggle to love one another? But that's exactly what God's called us to, not just in our blood relatives and married in people, but the whole body of Christ. How do we love one another? That's what Christ does when he comes as a baby. He enters a world that's very divided, not much different than what we have in our day. He comes into a dark world where the government's you know, intruding, that the religious practices are kind of being uh, forgotten, and, and the purpose of why God created the world has certainly yeah, been left in the back cabinet. And so bringing it into the forefront, Jesus says, I'm bringing love. For God so loved the world. That's a great, great love that he gave his only son. What a great gift, but that gift was a sacrifice that someone have to pay the price. That whosoever, this is the great promise, whosoever would believe in him, 
trust in this gift in Jesus, the love that he brings. He demonstrates, you know, I lived in Missouri for a while, and it's the show me state. We can say a lot of stuff about love, but you better show me. And Jesus did by being born, taking on flesh, dying on the cross, rising from the grave, that whosoever believed in him would not perish, being separated eternally from God, living in hell, but, but would have eternal life in heaven with him. That is a great thing that God brings to us at Christmas, and it's a great reminder. And so considering what this love that, uh, that, that Jesus brings, I want us to look at Matthew chapter 1 today. All right, Matthew chapter 1 has gene, Jesus' uh, genealogy, his whole lineage. All right, if you, if you don't have a Bible with you today, pick up the Pew Bible right in front of you, and you can turn to page 500, or no, 757. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, let it be a gift from the church to you. Just take that Bible. I'd rather you have that Bible with you reading at home than collecting dust here in this building if you don't have a Bible. But I want us to look at uh, Jesus' genealogy. Typically, when people read through the Bible, they get to these long sections of names, and either they go through it really quick, not knowing how to pronounce most of the names anyway, or they skip right over it. How many of you are guilty of skipping over the names and you don't read this section very often? As you gather with your family, maybe you read the Christmas story, you probably will not read these names. So I thought today, let's spend some time reading a few, uh, through a few of the names. Not because it's just going to be fascinating that you learn how to pronounce some of these, but there's a story even in the genealogy. I want to look at four specific people in this that will help you to understand Jesus' family wasn't perfect. They were a mess in many ways. Something very unique about this lineage is that in Jewish culture, you would always know who the father is and who their son is, the firstborn typically, and then who their next child is, and then it goes through the line. This genealogy is different than others in Jewish history. They, they list four women prior to the birth, or prior to Mary, you know, who was going to birth Jesus. Four women are in this passage, and that's very unusual for a Jewish uh, genealogy. And it's interesting why these four, there were many women in Jesus' family tree, but these four were, were selected, and not because they were the perfect uh, example of, of, uh, of godliness, but perhaps because they weren't, but they were still in Jesus' family. These were, in some ways, outcasts. These four women epitomized the kind of person that we would not expect to be in the royal heritage of the king of kings. So as we, if we look at this genealogy, it starts the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Those are the big players, of course, connecting uh, through his genealogy. It starts in verse 2, then, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers. Now we're tracking so far, if you've read Genesis at all. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, first woman mentioned in his genealogy. You know anything about Tamar? Tamar is not someone you would bring out and say, hey, look, this is great-grandma's photos. Of, you know, this is Tamar, and, and she's just a classic lady that we want to follow. No, Tamar was a mess, but she was listed in the genealogy of Jesus. Her story is found in Genesis chapter 38. You can read that at some other time. Let me summarize it briefly and, and try to use uh, words that are helpful, uh, but not too revealing. There's some incest, there's prostitution, there's deception. That probably got your attention, and, uh, and that's part of the Christmas story here. Judah had chosen Tamar as, as a wife for his firstborn. His firstborn was um, 
Ur, or E-R, is actually the two letters he has in his name. And Ur was evil. And God struck him dead in Genesis chapter 38, verse 7. Well, in, in Jewish custom, that if the brother dies and the wife is left, then the wife would then marry the second-born uh, male in the family so they could carry on the lineage. Well, Er's brother is Onan, or Onan. And she, he became uh, Tamar's husband. But he refused to have children with her because it wouldn't be his kids. It would be actually credited to his brother. And there must have been some hatred between these brothers. So he chose not to reproduce with her. Well, there was another son, but he was too young. And he w- she would have to wait for him to grow up before Tamar was able to, to have a husband and then produce a child for the lineage. And she was not patient. And so she took matters into her own hand, not unlike some of her uh, ancestors. Unwilling to wait, Tamar devised an evil scheme to become pregnant. She disguised herself as a prostitute, and she tricked her father-in-law in an inappropriate relationship. Both were guilty of sin. Her father-in-law's wife had already passed, and, and so when he saw her, then they had inappropriate relationships. And then she had twins out of them, and one of them became uh, within the messianic line. Tamar is in the family line of Jesus, this woman who illustrates, I believe, the sinfulness of humanity. When Jesus came, he didn't come from a perfect line of, of righteous people. He came through a line of sinful people who represented humanity worldwide, that all of us are separated from God and we live out our own sin. It may be in different patterns, different ways, but every person is a sinner in the sight of God. Every person has been separated from God because we were born into sin and we live out that sin. So where is the hope? Well, there's hope for us to be in the family of Jesus by trusting in him, no matter where you've come from. So Tamar is just one of those individuals in the family line of Jesus, illustrating the humanity, uh, the sinfulness of humanity. But she's prominently displayed here, which illustrates to me not just the sinfulness of humanity, but the amazing love and grace of God. The second person we'll see in this, in this section is actually in verse 5, but let's read the rest of those names in verse, uh, verse 3 and 4. And Judah, the father of Perez, and, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the uh, father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of uh, Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of ne- uh, Nethashon, and Nethashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Anybody ever heard of Rahab? Rahab, throughout the scriptures, both Old and New Testament, she's always uh, has this tagline to her name, Rahab the prostitute. She never lost that tag because that's how people remembered her, unfortunately. But her being a prostitute at the time actually connected her to the people of God. Rahab means pride, insolence, or savagery. She was a Gentile. Now, that's a very unusual uh, fact in this lineage, that this is a Jewish line of people connected to the birth of the Messiah. But within Jesus' family tree are those outside of the Jewish faith, Gentiles. So she was a Gentile, second woman listed in this lineage. She was a Canaanite, in fact, where, uh, which were the enemies of God's people. 
After 40 years, the Israelites had wandered in the desert. They, they were entering the promised land. Joshua sent two spies in to scout out the city uh, of Jericho before he was going to send in all the troops. The spies who had got into the city actually met Rahab and hid in her home. Now imagine that. Jewish men who were following God's leading ended up in a prostitute's home. And then not only there as the Romans, or not the Romans, the Romans hadn't come around yet, but as the uh, uh, Jericho um, uh, police guard, if you will, the, uh, those within the government were looking for these spies. They came to Rahab's home looking for them and asked if she had seen them, and she took it upon herself to lie on their behalf, saying, no, they were here, but they have already left, while they were still actually hiding in her care. Once those soldiers had left, she was able to uh, convince them to protect her, saying, now you're going to go, but, but I've heard of your great God. And, uh, you know, basically, I'm going to paraphrase what she's saying. I'm willing to abandon my people and the gods of the Canaanites because I believe your God is the real God, and I want your protection as you're going to come and conquer us. So they said they would do so if she would hang a scarlet cord outside her window so it would be easily recognizable to all that would come that don't destroy the home or the family of Rahab. That scarlet cord is very symbolic of the blood of Christ that also uh, covers us. Just like the Israelites that were in Egypt, as long as they had the blood across their door, death would not conquer them. They'd be protected well, through this process, she, Rahab, became a child of the true God, and she is listed in the lineage of Jesus. She's also the great-great-grandmother of King David, who's prominently positioned in verse 1. So you have two women so far listed in the lineage of Jesus, Tamar and Rahab, both, sinf both sinful women, but loved by God. Then you have in verse Five going on. Boaz by Rahab and, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. So we stop right there, right there in verse 5. Ruth is the third woman listed in the lineage of Jesus. One generation later, another Gentile woman is listed. Interesting once again, that this is a Jewish line, but two Gentile women are being listed right here in the lineage of Jesus. Unlike the first two women, Ruth was not a prostitute, but she was a Moabite. And the whole Moabite people were, were birthed out of sin and evilness. In Genesis chapter 19, Lot was living in a cave with his two daughters after Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. And after a few nights of drunkenness and, and illicit activity that he was not even fully aware of what was taking place, two children were born from him from, with his two daughters, Moab and ben Ami. Well, Moab became the father of the Moabites, and they were the enemies of the Israelite people. Interesting here that, that Ruth comes from these people who were at war with the Israelites, though she married Boaz, who was a Jew. Even in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 3, it says, No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. So this tribe of people separated from the Israelites, born out of sin, somehow an Israelite man chooses to sin against God and marry this woman 
but she's going to be used by God out of his great love and grace to bring in the lineage and, and the line of the Messiah. Like Rahab, Ruth placed her faith in the true God once it had been revealed to her about him. She received his love and grace, and she became the great-grandmother of King David. Let's go on through the passage. Let me just pause for a second, though. You think you've got some crazies in your family? Jesus has some pretty crazy stories, but all of it is the line of his redemption of sinful people, and no one is outside of the reach of the grace of God. You may be sitting here going, well, goodness gracious, I don't have a grandmother like Tamar. I certainly don't have anybody in my family like Rahab. And, and Ruth, well, you know, I, I at least respect her and some of the things that took place in her life. But, but let me just say, no matter where you are on the spectrum of your sin, God is gracious enough to bring you into his family and love you unlike anyone in the universe. The fourth woman listed here doesn't even have her name mentioned but she is certainly recognizable here. You notice that uh, in verse 5, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and ba Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. There's another woman, but her name is not mentioned. Does anybody want to take a guess who the wife of Uriah is? Bathsheba. Heard of her? Yes. How did she get into the line of Jesus? In 2 Samuel, uh, Samuel 11, we find Bathsheba bathing on a rooftop. And David was there, though it was the time for kings to be at war with, with his troops. He chose to stay at home. He had already made a, a bad decision by not being where he ought to be leading the troops. He stays at home, so all the men are gone. All the women are left. He's out uh, is gazing on the top of his roof, and he looks down, and he sees some woman bathing, and he falls in love with her, or at least in lust with her, which led to a, uh, a series of sinful activities, including David sending Bathsheba's husband, uh, brought him home, but then because he was not willing to, to sin against the troops and, and to be with his wife, he was uh, at a time of war. Then David sent him back out to the front lines to have him killed. Shortly after this time, Bathsheba birthed a child by David, and that child died very early on after the birth. But David was eventually confronted with his sin, and he repented. Read Psalm 51 if you want to see his repentance and his prayer there. Shortly after, Bathsheba conceived again and bore a son named Solomon, which is listed here in the genealogy. And through this son, Bathsheba was in the Messianic line to Jesus. Though she was guilty of adultery, she was included in the family of God. This amazes me. This is why reading the genealogies and doing some research is very helpful because you start to think, you know, when you read the, about the disciples, oh, they must have been perfect men. No, they're, they're a mess. You read the family of, of Jesus, you realize there are sin-filled people throughout all of his line. So when Jesus came, you realize that his grace is sufficient to cover the sins of his ancestors when they would trust in the promised Messiah, and his, uh, his grace is sufficient to cover you and I when we trust in this Messiah. 
Jesus' family tree is more of a hall of shame than it is a hall of fame. Two harlots, one cursed Moabite, an adulteress. Two sinful Jewish women, two sinful Gentile women. Yet all four women are mentioned in his genealogy. Jesus' genealogy is filled with sinners, and I believe that's the point. Jesus didn't come for perfect people. He came for shame-filled sinners, which tells me we don't deserve the gift that God has given us. John 3.16, once again, for God so loved the world. He didn't say that for God so uh, loved the world that was so lovable. So God so loved the world in spite of their sin that he gave his only son to sacrifice his life for you, that we are sinners separated from a holy God, and so he loved you beyond your sin. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And his genealogy shows this. We don't deserve the gift, but God's love is amazing. In 1 Peter Chapter 4, verse 8, it tells us that love covers a multitude of sins. Anybody excited about that and thankful? Now, I don't want you to misunderstand. I've got to make this very clear because sometimes in our, in our gospel presentation or our gospel understanding, we talk about God's love as if God's love covers the multitude of sins because God doesn't really care about the sins. And that is certainly not true. If sin didn't matter, Christ would not have died. Sin is a big deal to God. Sin separates us from God. God does not tolerate sin, but he does forgive sin. Do you understand the difference? Sometimes in our world, we think that love is tolerating sin as if it's okay. God never tolerates sin, but he certainly will forgive sin. And that's love. Love is not taking sin and sweeping it under the rug or, or, or turning our back and ignoring it as if it's not a big deal. When we sin, it's a big deal. But at the broken heart that repents and says, God, I'm so sorry. God more than, than welcomes you into his family and he forgives all of it for you. See, there'll be no sin in heaven. I'm thankful there won't even be temptation in heaven. He removes that. We talk about, oh, we want the free will of God. You know, the best free will is when he removes the will that desires the sin that is so, so present in our world. When we get to heaven, there's only one thing we're going to be capable of doing, and it's worshiping him and loving him as, as like he's been loving us. In this world, we stand between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of this world. And as believers, we do have a choice. What are we going to do with the abilities he's given us? We can love him freely. We've been enabled to do that by the Holy Spirit. But sin is still there, and we still battle the old flesh, the old man in our lives. And so we stand in two worlds, becoming more holy as we cling to him or we get drawn back into the world. As some of you use the word backslidden. You start going back to the world as if, well, I'm covered. God loves me. It's okay if I do these things he say are not right. It's not okay. And it's not safe. God disciplines those he loves. And that is love. 
If you're a parent, you understand the love you have for a child to discipline so they don't destroy themselves in, the, in, in wrong activity. In this lineage, you've got people who are incredibly um, separated from God in, in their sin, but God does not tolerate their sin, but he covered their sins with the death of Christ. He forgave them. It doesn't matter what our sordid past experiences are. It doesn't matter the failures or the sinful attitudes and actions we've had. Jesus Christ is a friend of sinners, Luke chapter 7 tells us. He's a friend of sinners. And he said, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners in Matthew chapter 9. We may be guilty of skipping over the genealogies too often, but let me tell you, do not skip over the love and grace that Christ displays throughout the scriptures. The Christmas story is about Jesus stepping into a world of sinners so that he could rescue them from the, the wrath of God that they deserve, to give them a gift they don't deserve, eternal life. God in his mercy does for sinners what sinners cannot do for themselves. That's why he came. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21 says, to save his people from their sins. I want you to consider where you are today with the grace of Christ. Every one of us, Romans 3.23 tells us, for, for all of sin fall short of the glory of God. I don't care if you're Billy Graham or, or you are, you know, just the worst person on the planet you've ever heard of. Every one of us are sinners, separated from a holy God. And God knew there was nothing we could do for ourselves to get us closer to God. We can't clean ourselves up. We can't uh, read our way into perfection. We can't uh, do enough good deeds. Neither was that God's plan for any of us. Because we could do nothing, he says, I will send the solution through my son to take on flesh. So innocent, so lovely, he was willing to sacrifice his son so that you and I would have eternal life. That's quite a sacrifice. That's quite a love. But what do we do with the son? We can have sentimental feelings about Christmas. We can have um, some acknowledgement that Jesus was a good man, that his, some of his teachings were wonderful, as so many different religions will do. But the difference is whether you, you believe he was a good man or he was the Christ and the only way to God. Are we worshiping him? Or have we sacrificed, or, or not sacrificed, surrendered our lives? There is no sacrifice here because it's all gain. To live as Christ, to die is gain. We have Christ at his free offering to us. At Christmas time, I want to remind everybody of that. It's not about what you do, but it's about what he has done and what has been given to you. And then if we, we understand the, the, the true love and the true offering of Christ to us. It, it really sets everything else into perspective. Why in the world would we ever want to go back to a sinful life? Not that we don't struggle with sin, but why would we want to embrace the sin of the world when it offers nothing but destruction and death, when the love of Christ offers us eternal life and love and joy and hope and peace forever? That's what we desire. There's only one way to heaven, and it's through Jesus.
That's the message you ought to share with your family and friends this week. Don't just glance over at a nativity scene and say, well, that's nice. Now let's get on to the real stuff, the real gifts opening or whatever. The greatest gift ever offered to you is Jesus and the eternal life that he brings. When that's open, why would we want to, to fool with anything else that is so less down here?